Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along, uh, we have pew Bibles provided there for you, and we'll be on page 62. And uh, that way you'll be able to look at the text that we'll be talking about this morning. This morning, as we come to Exodus 21, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 32. And we're continuing our consideration of some laws that God gave his people as they'd gathered there at Sinai. And last week, we saw that right after talking about some rules regarding worship and how that was to be different than other nations, God immediately commanded their care for the very most vulnerable among them, those who would serve for a time in Israel as slaves. And in it, we saw God's value for human life. Well, today we'll actually see. We saw his value for human life last week. But today we're going to see it even more and also his value for justice. You may be wondering um, why we study passages like this. I've been talking to some of you throughout the last few weeks, and uh, you've confessed to me uh, that these are passages you tend to skip or skim over in your Bible reading. And if that's your confession, you're absolved. Um, I I do that as well. Um, They're often strange texts, and as we come to them, we don't always understand what they're talking about. And it can seem very difficult for us to understand in particular how they apply to us as New Covenant believers. And so we know that because these passages are in the Bible, there must be a purpose. But as we turn to them again, I think it's helpful just to consider why these verses were given, how they were to function for the people of Israel in their context. Um, As we come to Exodus 21, we're following on the heels of the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. And then Exodus 21 and following is the Book of the Covenant, which is giving out um, what it refers to in 21.1 as these are the rules that you should speak to the people. And by that word rules, what's being unpacked here is that these are case laws. They're concrete, often typical cases that are going to take place, especially as they come into the land, which illustrate and provide examples for how the Ten Commandments should be worked out among God's people in that particular context. And so one of the things that we need to know is these rules weren't exhaustive. It may feel exhausting sometimes to read them, uh, but they weren't exhaustive. They were comprehensive, but not exhaustive. They weren't intended to um, deal with every situation that they would face. They were given to help the people of God grow in and practice wisdom. That's what God presupposes in his revelation of himself to his people, that they would become wise, that individuals and judges within the community would look to the law and to these case laws, and they would learn how God viewed things, in particular in what he commanded and what he forbid, and that then they would be able to seek to determine a wise course of action in whatever situation they would face. And that's where we find what's so helpful for us as New Covenant believers, is that God expects the same thing of us. He's working in that same way. God hasn't given us explicit instruction for every situation that we face. The last few months, I have been searching through my Bible for a verse on when you give your child a cell phone, and I can't find one. Um, 
Piper's been looking for it too. And so we're... Uh, but you can think of all kinds of situations you may come to the text of Scripture with questions about, and you'll find that they're not explicitly answered. But what has happened? God has revealed his character and his commands, his moral law, so that we, like we heard in our Scripture reading, can grow in Christ-like wisdom. And even though it's not easy and that we're not perfect at it and it's always in a state of dependence, we are able to apply these principles as best as we can to seek to live in a Christ-like way in all of life. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And that's what we see going on here in kind of type and shadow in its Old Testament context. And so all of that to say, as we come to our passage this morning, our posture is really God, show us your heart so that we can live more wisely, so that we can live more like Jesus in whatever situation we find ourselves in. That's really why um, we're coming to Exodus 21 and following. So with that in mind, uh, let me read our text this morning and then we will see what it has to say for us. So Exodus 21, starting in verse 12, this is God's word. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. If he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, 
the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So far the reading of God's word, and it is given for our good. And so let's go before the Lord and pray that he'll help us to understand his heart in it. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly asking for the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would meet us where we are, in our distractions and cares, in our weakness and tiredness. We pray that you would meet us in our sorrows and joys, in our doubts and in our faith. And we pray most of all that you would help us to better understand who you are, especially as you've revealed yourself through your word and through the living and incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, our approach to this passage this morning, um, and I should just say right from the start, there are all kinds of things that I will not be able to answer today. And um, we can talk about those later. I can point you in directions uh, to be able to study them more thoroughly. But I want you to know from the get-go the approach as we come to this text. And it's to consider two things that just jump off the page when we understand these laws. And then we'll consider some applications. So the the two points are God values human life. And secondly, God values justice. And then we'll consider some applications as we close. But to begin, let's consider of how this text shows that God values human life. And there are two things that I want us to see from this passage. The first is that these rules show us very clearly that God values all human life. He goes out of his way in these commands to show us that all types of people are included in this protection and all types of people are mentioned. And we notice this especially if we're comparing the Bible with other ancient Near Eastern law codes at the time. It just jumps out when you make these comparisons. Did you notice as I was reading it that it provides protection for both parents, for father and mother being assaulted in verses 15 and 17? Other ancient Near Eastern laws speak only of assaulting one's father, and some of them say that the punishment for that is losing one's hand. If a pregnant woman and her unborn child are accidentally harmed, We see the value of both the woman and the child. If it results in a premature birth, then restitution is to be paid for both people because humans have been affected by this accidental action and restitution must be made for the risk and the hardship that the mother and the unborn child went through. And if there is harm, if there is harm to the child or to the mother, then the payment becomes greater. And it's a life-for-life measure that's applied to it. If children, a son or a daughter, it says, are harmed by an ox, the same rules apply to their care as to a full-grown adult. The ox is stoned, which means that it can't be used for sacrifice. It can't be used for food. Its life is forfeited because it took the life of another. We see that that is held forth of this value of life and all life within God's law. But the most surprising thing that we come to is, especially when compared with other laws, is how slaves are addressed in this section. 
Now, there are a few verses right off the bat that sound a little disturbing to us, and we'll talk about those as we go on, especially verse 21 where it says, the slave is his money, or some versions translate it property, which I don't think is a helpful way of understanding that. But set the tricky parts aside for a moment, the emphasis is clearly on the fact that even the lowest of society, the slaves among them, are people and not property. Notice that if a master kills his slave, he is punished for murder. If a master injures his slave, the slave is to go free. If a slave is gored, the ox is put to death and restitution is made. The same as what happens for a free man or woman, child. Uh, It's the same for a slave. These protections for slaves are completely absent from other ancient Near Eastern law codes. And it just jumps off the page how they are people made in the image of God and under special protection and care. Now, I want to talk for a moment about this phrase uh, that can be so bothersome to us in verse 21. Verse 21 has a lot of tricky things going on, and I can't do it all the justice it needs. One of the things that we see happening here is that the slaves are being punished physically. And right off the bat, I think that's striking to us for, because of our historical context, um, and I think that it should be. But it's also important to understand that in this day and age, 3,000 years ago, as you hired someone for six years of service to you in this indentured servitude, there wasn't a labor board you could report to. There, wasn't, there weren't even the police that you could go to if the slaves were not um, keeping their agreement in what they had agreed to be done. And so we do see that some punishment is allowed here, although the Bible greatly restricts what that should be. And so there is this context of punishment taking place, but in this, the master goes too far and abuses his slave. He injures him. And if the slave dies, he is to be avenged. It's a murder that has taken place, and it applies to the laws that are mentioned earlier on. But then what it says is if the slave survives a day or two, and then it says um, that... Sorry, let me find it here. Um, Verse 21. It's giving you all time to find it as well, is really what I'm doing, just trying to care for you. If the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And so there are different things that could be going on here, but I think the clearest way to understand this is injury happens, but after a time of not being able to work, the slave is then able to work again. And what it's dealing with is restitution. In other situations, if someone is injured and can't work, then the person who injured them pays restitution for that lost labor time and makes sure all their medical benefits are covered. I think what's taking place here is if the master inflicts this upon his slave, he is the one who has lost the labor pay already, And he is the one who is already paying for the slave's medical care in helping him get better. And so it's just saying restitution is not given to anyone because the master's already assuming those costs. I think that's a very reasonable way uh, that many scholars understand this passage. There are other ways it can be taken as well. But all of that to say, 
even though there are these trickier texts for us to understand that are in a context far different than ours, the clear point of this passage is the high value that it has on all human life, from the greatest to the least. And so that's the first thing I wanted us to see. These rules show how God views all, how God values all of human life. Secondly, these rules show us that God demands punishment for harming human life. We see this right away in the punishment that murder evokes there in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man or a woman so that he dies shall be put to death. The punishment for murdering someone in an intentional, premeditated way is life for life. It's punishment by death. It's what we call capital punishment. And this is a principle that we don't see appearing for the first time here. It goes all the way back to what we would call the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9-6. There God says this as a principle that should exist for all humanity. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And it tells us the reason why. Why? For God made man in his own image. And we know from Genesis 1 that includes both men and women created in the image of God. You see, some hear uh, this commandment and the way capital punishment is mentioned throughout Scripture, and they say, the Bible has such a low view of life. Look how often it's being taken from someone. And the Bible's reasoning is exactly the opposite. The reason that life is required is not because of some low value of human life, but because the Bible sees every life as created in the image of God and therefore has a very high value because every person is created in his image and likeness. And so if you take a life, the punishment that it holds out is life. But we noticed in this text that it also talks about a whole host of other types of harm. Because what this is doing is really unpacking for the people what the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, looks like in everyday life. And it's a commandment that's not just talking about murder, but it's talking about the harm that we can do to one another. And so it mentions many situations that don't take a person's life per se, but bring harm to their life. Verse 16 speaks of kidnapping, stealing a person. And although they're still technically alive when you take them, it is such a violation of their life that it is punishable by death. And again, I just want to pause and say that if this principle had been held to by believers within our country, the um, instance of American chattel slavery as it existed, the man-stealing that went on would never have taken place. And so it's important to see the Bible's um, justice when it comes to such gross atrocities. And so kidnapping is mentioned in verse 16. In verses 18 and 19, if you assault somebody, if you strike them with your fist or with a stone, then if you injure them, you must compensate them for their lost labor and for their medical costs. But what I think is important to notice here too as well is it isn't just physical assault that God takes seriously. Did you notice that striking one's parent 
even though they survive, which would normally lead just to paying them compensation, right? But because of the fifth commandment and the value we place on our parents, as it then intersects with the harm done in the sixth commandment, we find that the penalty for striking one's parents to injure them, assaulting them, is worthy of capital punishment, the death penalty there. But did you also notice that in verse 17, cursing one's father or mother is punishable with the same penalty, the death penalty for cursing one's parents. Now, cursing here isn't just that you said a bad word when you were talking about your parents or to your parents. Um, What it's referring to here is treating with blatant disrespect. We could say that it's being verbally abusive. It's denigrating or repudiating one's parents. And most scholars of Hebrew law say that most likely what it's referring to in the cursing of one's parents is the disdain for them to the point that you don't provide for them in their old age, which is what we're called to do in seeking to honor our parents. And so we see that the harm that we need to care about here is not just observable physical harm of striking someone, but the things we do with our words or the care that we withhold is also something that God cares deeply about. As our non-physical actions towards someone can also do serious harm that needs to be reckoned with. And this is what the Bible says elsewhere, Proverbs 12:18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. The injuries of being run through with a sword is being compared to the way that we use our words. And we find this fitting with how God takes all kinds of harm that we do to image bearers. He takes it very seriously. And these laws also show all kinds of levels of intentionality. There's premeditated murder. There's manslaughter. There's accidental harm. And with each of these things, there are varying punishments and restitutions. And so, I know that it's kind of a lot as we hear all of these laws, but in summary, throughout this section, we see how seriously God's people are to take the harming of other humans. From the highest of society to the lowest of society from striking with fists or stones to harming with words and neglect, from intentional premeditated murder to accidental and negligent behavior. Human life is valuable to God, and it's not to be wrongfully harmed by his people. And so the question that comes to us as we consider this is do we have the same value for all of human life, as God has that value for all of human life. If you think about the situation in the ancient Near East, and again, it's over 3,000 years ago. It's hard for us to even understand. But think of someone who was coming coming from a situation where they were under other ancient Near Eastern law codes, and they came into Israel and they observed their laws and what Israel was supposed to be doing as a people they would have been amazed at how Israelite society prioritized all of human life and how they treated one another and how they punished wrongs. And so also, the question for us as 
God's people in our day and age is what is the world's impression of us? Is it that we are a people who through character, through deed, through word, show that we care far deeper about people, about all people than even they do? That's the effect that being around us should have to someone who would come in amongst us. And so the question that that raises for me as I think about it starts first of all here, right? Is that true among us in our church community as the people of God? Do they see us loving all people on a Sunday morning and throughout the week from babies in the womb to babies who are out of the womb and now wiggle and squeak during the service, the young children and the teenagers among us, to the young adults, to those who are single and divorced and widowed, to people who are older than us and younger than us, to people who are of higher worldly status than us and lower, people who have different hobbies than us and even different views than us and likes and interests? Do they see us in our attention to the body around us, moving towards all alike who are among us, valuing all of the life that is represented here and given to us as a gift of God, expressions of the very body of Christ among us, each one of us members of the other, You see, the way that we relate to one another as the body of Christ is a testimony to the watching world that we care about life, that we value life from the womb to the tomb as God values life. I would love for people to say of me, I would love for people to say of us, I don't understand a lot of things about what those Christians do. It's kind of weird they all hang out on Sundays. Some of them vote in ways I don't understand, whatever it may be. But whatever they're doing, I know this. It must be because they care about people. Because they care about all people. That is one thing I have to say from how they are. And if that's convicting for you, just know it's convicting for all of us. (laughs) We uh, all, as followers of Jesus, when we see God's heart for people, realize how woefully we fall short. But God gives us grace to continue following Jesus in this way. And so, but but that's the application from within. I want to talk about application as we look outward. Is our care for life evident in our conduct with the rest of the world, without the people outside of these walls as well? You see, Jesus, when he came on the scene, he showed his value of all human life, didn't he? He wasn't selective with the people he chose to minister to and to hang out with and to love. He surrounded himself with those who were on the left We had Matthew, the tax collector, and those who were on the right, Simon, the zealot, they were in his inner circle. 
And those, those who were oppressed, he cared for, and he cared for the oppressors. Those who were the highest of society, he loved, and as well as those who were the lowest of society. Do we value all people as Jesus valued all people? And we could talk about all kinds of ways that we can show love, this kind of love to the world, and I hope those are conversations we're having, and we want to continue thinking about those things as a church. But I just want to highlight one concrete way that I know that I struggle with and I think is the starting point for us as God's people, and that is how we speak of all people. And the reason I go there is because James goes there when he talks about the very things that we saw in our passage. James says in James 3, 9, and 10, that with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, our tongues, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Do you see how that resonates with God's value of life that we saw in our passage? And he says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. And so the question that I've been mulling over in this is, do our words about other people show God's value for all human life? As our children overhear us talk with our friends about people who think differently than us, or the posts that we have read about others who disagree with us, will they hear from our lips the value and dignity and worth of every human who's an image bearer in the things that we say. If our neighbors, especially our unsaved neighbors, were to hear what we say back to the TV or what we say back to our phones as we scroll through our feeds, would they hear God's heart and value of all human life, people's dignity and worth because they're created in God's image? Lives that are worth loving and protecting, and serving? Or would they hear disregard and cursing of those who resemble God to us? You see, our tongues are rudders that steer the rest of our ship in our ability to show love to this world. In a sense, it begins with our hearts, and our hearts um, flow out in our tongues, don't they? And so I, I think that's a good place for us all to turn afresh to the grace of our Lord Jesus. So God values human life. He values all human life. And secondly, God values justice. God values justice. This passage, and especially as we look at verses 23 to 25, it's the first of three occurrences in the Old Testament of what's often called the lex talionis. Now that's just Latin for the phrase law of retaliation. And it's speaking of, it's really shorthand for this phrase of eye for an eye. So if you hear, if you're reading stuff about this and you hear lex talionis, you can think measure for measure, eye for eye, law of retribution. It's all speaking about the same thing. And this measure for measure punishment, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, this can sound, I think, pretty extreme and barbaric to us. 
when I read it, I immediately picture Old Covenant Israel and a bunch of people walking around who are maimed because this law has been kept. They've, a bunch don't have an eye, learned my lesson, oh, lost a hand, and uh, that's how it's happening all over Israel. I want to explain the view of justice that this measure for measure of punishment puts forth biblically because when rightly understood, it's far from that caricature that I have in my mind. This eye-for-an-eye principle, when rightly practiced, promotes proportional justice. Part of what it is to ensure is retribution. It's to ensure that when a wrong happens, punishment happens to the wrongdoer. But notice, it limits the punishment to what is proportionate. It's not, you burned my hand, so I'm going to take your life. That's not allowed in something like this. It brings punishment without vengeance or excessive punishment. Now, wait a minute, right? Because it can still seem pretty excessive. I mean, people are being killed or maimed for crimes other than murder. And in some ancient Near Eastern law codes, it was maiming people for particular crimes. If you do this, you cut off this. If you do that, you pay this. But our passage, as well as all of the other evidence that's out there regarding Old Testament Israel, shows that this eye-for-an-eye principle was used as a principle, not necessarily for literal, physical maiming of people. And we see this in our text. Notice that right after this eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth formula that we find in verses 23 through 25, Verses 26 and 27 give us an example. A master harms his servant's eye or knocks out his tooth. Same words that we find in the measure for measure section, right? What would literal application of that be? Okay, the master's eye or the master's tooth is taken care of. What does God's word hold forth as the measure for measure punishment for that? The slave, after enduring that injury, goes free. And see, part of the the beauty of what's happening here is in taking this measure-for-measure punishment as a principle by which to enact, what it's doing is it's advancing the law even beyond what was often seen in the world around it, where when you would harm someone, money was to be paid. Well, what's the problem with just money being paid? There can be disparity about who has money and who doesn't. If I have a lot of money... I can harm a lot of people and still be fine. Don't take that out of context um, as you go forth today. But, and, and if I don't have a lot of money and someone is harmed, the payment for that can leave me destitute, right? But this measure for measure punishment takes into account what is the value of the eye of the person who has lost it and what is that value to the eye of the person who did the harm to keep their eye. And what we find is, like, in this particular situation, who is more harmed by the loss of an eye or a tooth, the master or the slave? The slave is extremely harmed by the loss of their physical capacity because that's all they have to make an income, to survive in the world, whereas the master has other recourse. So what's a fitting measure-for-measure punishment that protects the slave and also punishes the master for his wrongdoing? 
That slave goes free. And so this eye for an eye principle accounts for the status differences between victim and wrongdoer. And what we see throughout Scripture is that it was a principle that was used to determine proper punishment and proper restitution. And I want to clarify one other thing that I think just helps us as we're understanding our Old Testaments, which can, again, sound so foreign to us. Not only are we not picturing people who are being maimed for all kinds of crimes, but also it seems that in many situations the death penalty was not always enforced literally. Now, I want to clarify. Uh, What it does mean is that ransoms or monetary compensation, paying for the value, the relative value of a life, was given instead. And we see this again in our section, the ox goring section, where the owner is supposed to die because he knew that his ox had a tendency to gore other people. And sure enough, that ox gored someone and killed them. What is to happen for the owner? He is to be put to death along with the ox. But do you notice what it says in verse 30? He shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Here we see that in the face of something that's deserving of capital punishment, that a ransom for his life can instead be paid to the victim. And if you think about that, that's also a very gracious thing on a lot of levels. It still is valuing life. um, But what it's also doing is in the payment of the value for that life, it gives the family money to be able to survive and keep living in the sudden loss of someone in this really unfortunate accident of which the master is culpable. And so so that's a situation that's happening too. Every time we hear that someone is supposed to die doesn't mean that that's necessarily what's happening. It puts it in the category of capital punishment and a ransom for that life can often be given. But there is one unexpected, Unexception? That's probably not what I'm trying to say. There's one thing where a ransom can never be given. And this helps us understand that ransoms can be given. That's clarified later in Numbers 35:31, And I'll, I'll just read it for you. It says, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer, that's premeditated killing of an individual, who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And so as we understand this, what it's saying is ransoms can be used in many cases, but not when it comes to the intentional killing of another person. Capital punishment still holds. But do you see how that also implies and even confirms ransoms were allowable in other situations? So in Old Testament Israel, it doesn't seem like we had a bunch of people being maimed by the law, and maybe not everyone who was deserving of the death penalty was put to death, but instead what we see is that God laid out a principle for the wise application of justice and restitution for harm that is done to image bearers. It's a system of proportional punishment to the wrongdoer and compensation for the victim. Anyone saying they want to go to law school right now? I I think that's about enough today of unpacking some of these law codes. Um, Before we move on to application, I'd like to say this. There are all kinds of ways that we can apply these principles here. 
There are all kinds of ways they can be used for us to understand how laws should govern a society well. And um, there are places you can turn to for people who have thought long and hard about those things. Frank has done much thinking in this area. There are other books and resources that um, I or the other elders could point you to as well. But this morning, I want to spend our remaining time considering what all these laws show us about God's heart. And I really want to close with three applications of how we grow in God's value of justice and God's value of life. This is our third point, growing in God's value of justice and life. The first application is this. God's heart for justice, it assures us in our doubt. The longer we continue as Christians, one of the dynamics we may find at play is the more aware of our own sin we become. And have you ever had those times when you hear what still wells up in your own heart, you hear what still comes out of your mouth, And you wonder if God really knew what he was getting into when he said that your sins are forgiven. Or do you think back over sins that you've done and you increasingly realize the harm that those sins have done to others, sometimes seemingly irreparable harm. And you realize as you continue as a Christian, the harm that you continue to cause to people, even unintentionally, because we're not Jesus and we live in a fallen world. And there's that nagging sense within of condemnation and shame that says justice has not been satisfied. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God's measure for measure justice assures us that not one part of any sin that we have ever committed has escaped his notice, or been unaccounted for by him. But it assures us that perfect, proportional justice has been paid in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus cried out, it is finished. No more payment on the part of sinners who are trusting in him is to be made. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's love of justice assures us that it was paid for in the cross. And secondly, God's heart for justice, it comforts us in our pain. As we look at these laws, As we look at these laws, part of what we see is that God understands harm more thoroughly than any of us do. And part of what we see in it, too, is that God knows exactly what it will take to remedy that harm and to make it right. And so what that means for us is this. Well, there's another layer to it, too. (laughs) He knows it not only omnisciently, But do you realize that now through the Lord Jesus, he knows it both omnisciently and through human experience. The harm that we can do to one another and the harm that is done to us. 
And we don't have all of the answers about why he allows it. We know it's for our good and his glory somehow. We know that he hates it. But what we know is he knows exactly what it will take to make it right and to heal us from it. And when our God says that one day he will wipe away every tear, it is not some naive statement of saying, everything's going to be okay. Just put on a happy smile. It is God's promise that from his very fullness, he will bring to us what will overwhelm and make right all of the loss that we have felt and what will heal all of the harm that we have endured. And he will bring us a glory that outweighs even the heaviest suffering we have ever borne. We may not be able to fathom what could be good enough to bring forth both justice and healing, but he does. His measure-for-measure understanding assures us he does, and he asks us to trust him that he will do it one day. And so God's heart for justice, it assures us in our doubt, it comforts us in our pain. And then finally, God's value of human life, it assures us of his love. This takes us back to where we began. God values human life. Can I let you in on a secret? It's not really a secret. It's an observation. In churches like ours, we tend to place a high priority on the transactional value of the cross, don't we? It's, w- it's what we just talked about, full atonement, justice satisfied. And this is good and right and beautiful, but it can also, if we just leave it at that, it flattens out the gospel. And what it tempts us to do is to miss God's heart and to think of him only in these forensic legal categories. And what happens when we do that is we distort the character of God and what we picture is he's some kind of disgruntled, disaffected cosmic bookkeeper up in the sky saying, with the atonement, I must right all wrong and make sure all scores are settled. But scripture calls us to see more than that. And what it calls us to see is this. That God's act of satisfying justice on our behalf in the cross was motivated by his high value of human life. It was motivated by his love for your life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And see, in our Lord Jesus, we see this with crystal clarity. He didn't come to earth just dispassionately counting down the days until he could make the sacrifice that righted all wrongs. He lived out his days embodying God's love and heart to people like you and me. And he went to the cross and gave his life for people he loved. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. 
and he came in the form of a slave. He was betrayed for the price of a slave. He died the death of a slave so that we could know the greatness of the Father's love in making us the very children of God. Do you see the cross as the unshakable evidence of God's value of life? But even more poignantly, do you see the cross as the unshakable evidence of God's value of your life? That you can say with Paul, who was a murderer and deserved to die, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, God's value of human life, shown in sending his Son, assures you today that if you are in Christ, God loves you. And that love enables us to lift our eyes to the broken and needy world around us and to love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're continually continually amazed that as you reveal yourself, even through laws that can seem so strange to us, you you reveal the beauty of your heart, the wonder of your love and grace. And if we were to ever doubt, we just look through the eyes of faith to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see the justice, the love, the mercy, the grace that he has shown us, the grace that testifies to who you truly are. Will you strengthen our faith in these things? And will you help us to be a people who are so shaped by your justice and love that we're able to bring that to the world around us that so desperately needs to hear it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.